Good evening, everyone. How you doing today? Hope you don't mind I use this. This mic and I have become good friends over the years. And plus, it's my security blanket. We are grateful uh, for the opportunity to come and uh, to share what the Lord has done. Uh, truly, this uh, is all a work of the Lord in my life, and I'm sure that each of you have uh, testimonies of how the Lord has transformed you, completely transformed you. And I just want to share a little bit tonight. Um, it's hard to boil down uh, 30-some years. No, 42 years. Praise the Lord, he's kept me here this long uh, into this little space, but we're going to do our best. Uh, if you will, turn with your, turning your Bibles to uh, the book of John, chapter 21. We're going to read a little bit and uh, kind of go back and forth, uh, read a little bit, share a little bit, uh, expound a little bit, tell a little testimony, and see what the Lord does with it. John chapter 21, beginning at verse 1. And it reads, After these things, Jesus, so, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and in this way he showed himself. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, We are going with you also. And they went out and immediately got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. Something they've seen before. But when the morning had now come, Jesus uh, stood on the shore, and yet his disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, Children, have you any food? And they answered him, No. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast, and now they were not able to draw, in, draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Drop down to verse 15. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Let's pray. Lord, we come now just uh, humbled in your presence, seeking your power, your anointing, Lord, to teach and to hear and to receive. God, we know that we can't do anything without you. We just pray that the word that you have laid upon my heart would be uh, bread to each of us as we hear. We pray that uh, the testimony of what you have done, Lord, would be pleasing unto you. And Lord, that you would use this time to be glorified. We ask in your precious name. Amen. There's a poem that says, I have to live with myself. And so... I want to be fit for myself to know. I want to be able, as days go by, always to look myself straight in the eye. I don't want to stand with the setting sun and hate myself for the things I've done. I don't want to keep on a closet shelf a lot of secrets about myself and fool myself as I come and go into thinking that nobody else will know the kind of man I really am. I don't want to dress myself up in a sham. I want to go out with my head erect. I want to deserve all men's respect. But here in this struggle for fame and pelf, I want to be able to like myself. I don't want to think as I come and go that I'm all bluster and bluff and 
empty show. I never can hide myself from me. I see what others may never see. I know what others may never know. I never can fool myself. And so whatever happens, I want to be self-respecting and conscience-free. Now, this poem by Edgar Guest, uh, an early uh, 20th century poet, if we be honest, some of us may say, boy, that uh, has a pretty familiar ring to it. Uh, I know that uh, it had a familiar ring to me when I read it years ago, and, and I imagine if, if we were to uh, just think back to the life of Peter, that this may be a familiar one to him as well, considering uh, what happened that night in the courtyard. Fortunately, you all have all the background because we just talked about it Sunday. Amen? So a little review. So we know that uh, when, after Jesus had said, before the cock crows three times, you will deny that you even know me. And, and Peter stood and said, even if all men forsake you, I'll never forsake you. Even if all men are caused to stumble, I will not stumble. And yet we know that it all came crashing down that evening in the courtyard as they warmed themselves. And so in our text here tonight, we find Peter in, in John chapter 21 and 3. Of course, we're studying Luke, and uh, Luke does not cover this, so it's, it's pretty helpful uh, context. So we find him in uh, John 21, 3 saying, I'm going fishing. Jesus has been taken to the cross. He has died, and He's risen from the dead, but here's Peter, and he's, he says, I'm, I'm, I'm going fishing. I'm, it's over. I've blown it. When, when challenged as to whether I know Jesus or not, I stood bold-faced three times, and I denied that I even knew him. Jesus could never use me. I betrayed him. So he says, I'll go back and do what I do best, and that is fish. Of course, to know the whole story, you've got to go all the way back to Luke 5.10, right? All the way back to Luke chapter 5, when they had the first catch of fishes, when Jesus had borrowed Peter's boat and pushed out a little bit to the sea. Matter of fact, turn there real quick. Luke chapter 5. I never want to assume that people know the stories. These stories are awesome. And of course, we can. Uh, let's start at verse 4. Uh, when he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish and their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. Uh, they came and filled both the boats, so they began to sink. And here it goes in verse 8, Simon Peter saw it and fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. And also were James and John, his partners. And then we keep going. And at the end of verse 10, Jesus says to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will catch what? Men. You will catch men. What a calling. From now on you will catch men. And thus begins a pretty prolific three-year run with Jesus for Peter. Uh, Jesus changed his name in Matthew 16, 16 from Simon, which means reed-like or grass-like, really shaky. You know, shaky Simon, God turned him, his name, Jesus changed his name to Rocky Peter. Peter means rock, so he goes from shaky to rocky. Isn't that awesome? Yeah, and then uh, he was outspoken, we know. He was a natural-born leader. Uh, he was the de facto spokesman uh, of the disciples. Uh, he, he was the one when Jesus said, whom do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? It was Peter who raised his hand. Oh, I know, I know. Pick me, pick me, Jesus. Uh, I know you are Jesus the Christ, the son of the living God. You know, in John 6, 6, uh, John 6, 66, when uh, Jesus had these hard sayings about he is, he is, uh, his, he's the bread of life and people began to leave him and he turns to the disciples and says, will you leave me also? And then Peter, he, here he goes again, Jesus, Jesus, pick me, pick me, right? He says, where will we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. So he's, he's very outspoken. He's a natural leader. Peter walked on water, one of only two people in all of human history to be able to stake that claim. Jesus, of course, being the other one. He was in Jesus' inner circle along with James and John. By all accounts, Peter was perhaps one of Jesus' closest earthly friends. In fact, it could be argued that he was Jesus's closest 
earthly friend. He came to Jesus' defense. We talked about on Sunday uh, in the Garden uh, of Gethsemane after his arrest. He's the one that drew the sword, right? He's the one that struck Malchus's ear off. He stood up for Jesus. But I imagine if we were interviewing Peter, and we were going through his resume here and all these great things, and then we got to that one question. Tell me about that night in the courtyard. Tell me about that night when you were warming your hands at the fire. And they said, you were with him, weren't you? I imagine you would see the rock begin to crumble. How does someone with such promise and potential end up in a place of utter collapse? And how then might they have any hope in being restored to a place of usefulness to God? See, I relate to Peter in my testimony. Peter's remarkable career, much like my own journey, bounced between faith and failure. And I imagine maybe some of you sitting here can say the same. Like him, I had a promising start, uh, derailed by failure, but restored by Christ. So in the beginning... And this is the really, really short Cliff Notes version. Uh, my parents divorced when I was four. That was really messy. Uh, my dad was saved. Uh, he had received Christ. My mom did not. Uh, and that was part of what contributed to their divorce. They split apart. Uh, my mom had me. Uh, she took me all over the place, all over the place, California, Vegas, Chicago, anywhere to keep me away from my dad. Uh, it, at some point, um, around five or six, she came to realize that uh, I was better off in a more stable home, which my dad and my stepmom could provide. Uh, so she sent me to live with my dad um, at third grade. So life for me begins, literally begins, at age seven. Uh, I don't remember anything prior to age seven. Um, the Lord was good in blocking out whatever I must have gone through uh, to keep me from being haunted by that in my life. So in many ways, I, I started life at age seven. I was enrolled in Christian school. My dad was determined uh, to make sure that I had a good foundation in the Word of God. I enrolled in Warwick Christian School, which became Commonwealth Christian School. Uh, that's where I learned my little jingle, uh, the books of the Bible, and that's why I know the books of the Bible today. Let us sing the books of Moses, books of Moses, books of Moses. Kieran may remember it, I taught it to those guys when we were doing uh, four- to six-year-old children's ministry, right? So we know all the books of the Bible. I'm still trying to teach my kids. They think it's corny until they come up with a better song and keep teaching this one. So around age 10, my dad started a Bible study in our, in our, our uh, kitchen, uh, dining room table. Uh, that Bible study eventually became known as Gates of Faith Ministries, still, uh, still going today, still going strong today. Uh, and I was active from the very beginning, from the moment the church doors opened. I was uh, very, very active. Uh, if I was known as a PK, preacher's kid. Uh, and if you're in a small church and you're a preacher's kid, you're going to do some work, right? You're going to do something in the church. There's no sitting around being lazy for you. Uh, so we were expected to serve. Uh, I became the church organist uh, at 11 years old. So I've been playing keys and organ and piano since I was 11, a um, little while. Uh, but for me, it was not an obligation. It wasn't, I was never forced to serve. I loved serving. I, just from the beginning, I loved serving in any way that I possibly could. And I don't know why, I just loved it. Uh, I loved the fellowship. Uh, the, the church was like an extended family, you know, and just, like, just like it is here. It's like a, it's like a family. Uh, and, and I just loved being around them. All my friends were, were folks in the church. I really didn't know anybody outside of church. It was just like my little cocoon of people that I knew. Uh, but I didn't yet know Jesus as my personal Savior. So came up in a Christian school, serving in the church. I didn't yet know the Lord. Around 13 or 14, I had a dream uh, or a vision or I don't know. I woke up and I saw something. Uh, and what I saw was a flash of light and then immediate silence, in the middle of the night, immediate silence. And the first thing that came to my mind was the rapture just took place. And I've been left behind. <laughs> that was not cool. <laughs> so I am panicked. 
absolute panic, panic, panic. And I hear nothing, nothing, absolute silence in the house. I'm like, Lord. And I start praying. I'm sweating. I'm crying. And I'm like, I've just been left behind. I've been left behind. And then all of a sudden, I hear a little snore. And I'm like, oh, I'm still here. They're still here. They haven't left me. So I run to my dad's bedside that that night. And I said, Dad, I want to be saved right now. Right now. So he, he leads me in the sinner's prayer. I repent and I receive Jesus Christ as my Savior right there, 13, 14 years old, by my dad's bedside, middle of the night. Uh, and that was awesome. That was awesome. And, and from that moment, I was all in. You know, again, being a PK, I was just kind of trained up that way. But I was all in. There was just, there was no part of my life that was not consumed by being a part of the church fellowship and serving in some manner within the church uh, I was preaching it by age 16, um, and I loved the Word of God. I loved the Word of God. And I don't know very many teen- teenagers, even today, who never have to be told to even pick up the Bible, and they just study for hours and hours. And I'm sitting in my, on my bed reading the Bible, and here comes my dad walking by and sees me studying and just stops and looks, just keeps on walking. I can't even imagine what he was thinking. Um, but for whatever reason, the Lord just placed within me a sincere love for his word. I was a top Sunday school student. Uh, I spent hours studying the Bible without being told, but I was naive. Again, I, I was 13, 14. I was in my early teens, mid-teens. I was naive. I was sheltered. Again, I was part of this great family, this great uh, church community, and I was not ready for the traps that Satan had set for me after I left home. I was not ready. I had all the word in me, but I was not, I was not prepared for it. I, I, was, I was not able to anticipate the types of trials that awaited me uh, when I left home. And Martin Luther King said, The ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands at times of challenge and controversy. And for Peter... It was easy for him to stand bold and tall when he's with Jesus and all the disciples, right? Anybody can stand and, and, and declare when you've got the God of the universe there beside you and 11 really good, strong men standing beside you. But with Jesus under arrest and all the other disciples scattered and now Peter all alone, what now about his bold confessions? They're going to be put to the test. See, was Peter brave or was it bravado, right? Was he like the cowardly lion in The Wizard of Oz? You know, when, when they're going down the, ro- the yellow brick road and the lion jumps out and he's all blustering and all this stuff, right? You know, and then Dorothy just smacks him and, he's, and he just completely falls apart, right? So what, what's Peter made of? We don't know yet, but we're about to find out. James warned us in James 1.22 that it's possible for us to deceive our own selves. You see, Satan knows our weaknesses. Uh, Our good friend Bob Dworkin, who's now with the Lord, used to say, Satan knows our drug of choice. Wow. He knows our drug of choice. He knows our blind spots. And for me, all my weaknesses and blind spots were on full display in the crucible of college life. When I left and I went to college, I was absolutely smitten by the college experience. I mean, the moment my parents pulled, it, pulled out of the parking lot and hit the road, my eyes were wide open. I mean, biggest saucers. I am on my own. I'm in Raleigh, North Carolina. I am two hours away from home, and there's nobody to tell me what to do. Again, I was not prepared. I was not prepared. It was as if I was trying to make up for all the years that I had been a good kid back at home. Because I knew kids that were drinking. I knew kids that were, that were doing drugs, smoking weed. I knew kids that were, you know, having relations and all that kind of stuff. And I had no interest in that. I was so into what we were doing at the church. I had no interest whatsoever into that, in that stuff. But the moment I was separated from my family... The moment I was separated from my security circle and I was left alone, my vulnerabilities and my weaknesses and my blind spots 
all showed up. It's going to be put to the test. Ultimately, I've found myself bearing no resemblance whatsoever to that young 16-year-old preacher. And the more engulfed I got in worldly things, the less interested I was in spiritual things or even coming home. You know, because now you come home and, and those who are discerning can tell that you're not walking with the Lord. Mm-hmm. And so everybody, everybody's got a sermonette for you when they see you. And, and I'm telling you, when, when, when you're wrong and you're not ready to get right, that's the last thing you want to hear is somebody trying to share a little word with you. You know, trying to steer you in the right direction. I didn't want to hear it. And it, it was, it's, it's so subtle. Young people, is so subtle. I mean, it just starts with a tiny temptation, and, and it's, it's, almost like, it's almost like eating the fruit in the garden, right? You eat that. You eat the fruit. God said, you will surely die. And you eat the fruit, and you don't drop dead. You're like, oh, I survived. But you didn't survive. Something died in you right then and there. And, and that's what happened with me. Just little by little, I was getting sucked in, sucked in, sucked in to the world. Along the way, I realized that I still had a marketable skill. I didn't know it was marketable until I got to college, and that was the ability to play music. Because, again, being a preacher's kid, you don't get paid to play at your, at your dad's church. That's your reasonable service, son. <laughs> but other churches where you don't have that family connection would pay a pretty penny for a good, reliable musician. And so I began playing at the churches uh, in Hampton. By this time, I was in Hampton. By this time, I was in Hampton, and I was playing uh, organ at the churches. And I was a minister of music, working with choirs, teaching songs, a lot of things like what we do here, I was doing there. So I've been doing that for a long time. But I was still living for the world. I was involved in church, uh, but I was still living fully for myself. And fully for the world. And uh, it is amazing because, it, you know, I knew other kids then as well that weren't walking with the Lord. That, you know, probably had a church upbringing. And, you know, they were coming to church and they were sitting in the back. And, you know, they almost like, check the box. I went to church so I can tell my mom I went to church, you know, when she calls me on Sunday afternoon to say, did you go to church? Uh, but that wasn't me. Again, my, my, my makeup of service in church just never stopped. And that was what was so dangerous. I was serving up in front. I didn't sit in the back. I didn't try to hide. I put all those gifts and talents that the Lord gave me right there on full display, even though I was still far, far from the Lord. And I'll tell you, that was a low, low, low point in my spiritual journey. Jesus said in Matthew twenty-three, twenty-seven. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which appear, indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. That, loved ones, was me. That was me. I still can't believe that the Lord would even, I I could stop right there and just say, okay, you know, y'all get out early or something. I, I cannot believe, I cannot believe that he would allow me to even live, to even live after disgracing his name like that. God is so merciful. So junior year, uh, I got involved in pledging a fraternity on campus. So it just gets better and better. Um. Now, I went to Hampton University, which is a historically black college or university, HBCU. Uh, And the fraternity that I pledged is an African-American fraternity. Now, I say that because African-American fraternities tend to be very, very, very tight-knit. And that tight-knitness never, ever, ever, ever ends. You know, you could pledge fraternity and be like, all right, I've graduated, I've moved on with life, and, you know, I may run into, oh, you're a frat brother. Hey, guy, how you doing? How have things been? And you just move on. But, I mean, these guys, like, they live for one another. The Martin Luther King Memorial in D.C., that, that 
exist today because of the fraternity. That's how deeply these guys are rooted in. And I, like a dummy, pledged. Uh, and, and, and I'll say this, it's, it's not necessarily sin. I won't break fellowship with people who you know, think that it, it's okay or it's not a sin. The Bible didn't say anything. But I will tell you that you know, from what I've read and what, I've, what I now know, uh, the secretive nature of it, the fact that it has roots in, in Freemasonry, it is something that should give Christians pause. It should certainly give Christians pause before they start messing around with it. I will tell you that now. And I'll be, I'll be happy to elaborate on that testimony, too, for anyone, any of you young people who are on your way to college and thinking about, yeah, don't mess with it. So for me, uh, the Lord had made it clear to me, however, that it was not in his will for me to be a part of that fraternity. In no uncertain terms, he made it crystal clear to me that that's not my will for you. Uh, and uh, that didn't stop me. And as many times before, the Lord used my dad as my mouth, as that mouthpiece to tell me. Maybe that was part of the problem. You know, you never, you know, but by that time you're young, you're rebellious, you think you know everything. It's amazing how little I knew when I thought I knew it all. Right? And so that, that's, he, he's telling me, I don't think you should pledge. You really shouldn't pledge. That stuff is of the devil. You really shouldn't mess with it. There's a satanic undercurrent. I'm like, Dad, you've never even been to college. You don't know. This is what I'm saying to my father. Hmm. And I couldn't see it at the time. I thought he was trying to squash my fun. Uh, And it was fun. In many ways, it was fun. But my foundation was slowly crumbling right before my feet, and I didn't realize it. So the first sign of God's merciful wooing of my heart came actually via the fraternity. Uh, when my dad found out months later after I had crossed, so after he gave me this advice and said, I don't think you should do this, I really don't think you should do this, and I decided, nope, I'm going to do it anyway. And then, you know, again, it's such a big deal at HBCUs, crossing is like a massive, massive, you know, event on campus. I mean, families come to see their kids cross. You know, old fraternity brothers from years and years and years ago come to see the new guys cross. So this was a massive event on campus, and my dad finds out like months after I've already crossed. And I didn't mean for him ever to find out. (laughs) But he finds out, and I'm thinking I'm going to get the biggest sermon now. Oh, he's going to preach at me big time now because I've, I've deliberately gone and defied his counsel, and I didn't get a sermon he said, Tawan, that really hurts. I'm like, how did it hurt you? Why didn't you call me and tell me that you were crossing? Because I would have been there. My mind was blown. Blown. Like, what do you mean you would have been there? He said, Tawan, you're my son. If it meant that much to you, I would be there with you to celebrate with you. I don't agree with it, and I believe there will be consequences for it, but that does never diminish my love for you. And that thing, I almost wish I had gotten a sermon. That was the, it's like that was the wrong thing for him to say. I just wanted him to be mad at me so I could say, yeah, 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 well, you don't know what you're doing. For him to pour that love out upon me, that was like the first sign that God was, was beginning to pull me in. Was, get, was beginning to draw me home. And I just couldn't get my head around. It's like, why are you doing this? Why are you being so nice? Why are you offering this kind of love when you know that I completely defied what you asked me to do? It's like the prodigal son, right? He, he returns home and says, Father, I'm not even worthy to be called your son. He's like, none, none of that. You know, go kill the fatted calf and put a robe on him and put a ring on his finger. And his son, son's like, what is going on here? I don't even deserve to be your son. And yet the father loved him. And I tell you, that thing nagged me to no end. And I never got free from that. I never got free from until later. But from that point, I, I could never get past that. I didn't realize that God was calling me home. So in 95, I graduated from college. And I went to work in D.C., Big, bad, fast D.C. I was making great money working for a consulting firm. I was doing very, very well on the outside, taking care of myself. Uh, But inwardly, 
all the years of running from the Lord were slowly taking their toll on my life. I was still hanging out with my unsaved friends. I was still going to the happy hours, still drinking and all that silly stuff. Uh, But I was so dry and so empty on the inside. I had no peace. I had no joy. Coming home every day was was like, uh, I would would come home and and I would would come in the door and I'd shut the door and I'd be like, like I survived another day. That's how it was in my life. I tell you, it is no fun being out of fellowship with the Lord. It is no fun being out of fellowship with the Lord. It was so not fun. At some point, I just decided I was going to stop drinking. I wasn't walking with the Lord, but I got so sick of drinking and being hungover. I just said, you know what? This is not even fun anymore. I'm just going to stop. And I just stopped. Praise the Lord. I just stopped. And the Lord even touched my bank account. Because, of course, the Lord knows where to hurt, you know, where to touch you where it hurts. And uh, my sense of financial security, my sense of, you know, I've got enough money to, you know, to pay all my obligations and have some left over. The Lord just ripped all that apart. Uh, in Haggai, I'm sure you know the verse, uh, Haggai 1.6, you have sown much, you bring in little, you eat, but you do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages earns wages to put into a bag with holes. That was me. It's like all that money that the consulting firm was was paying me, it seemed to be going into a bag with holes. And all these anxieties and all these depressions and all these things just building up and building up finally brought me to a place in August of 97 where I woke up that morning going, getting ready to go to work, and it just hit me. And I said, there was a time when I didn't have to worry about any of this because the Lord was with me and I picked up the phone that morning and I called of all people my dad and I said dad I'm done running I'm ready to return to the Lord and I prayed a prayer I repented and recommitted my life to the Lord that day and it was as if I was completely alive again it's like all the dryness was just gone You know, all the lack of peace was just gone. God's peace and his joy was just instantly right back upon me. I didn't want to hang out with my unsaved friends anymore. Next time we went to happy hours, like, I have a ginger ale. And the next time after that, I said, you guys just go ahead. I don't even want to go. You know, and it was just immediately the Lord began changing me. And I had this overwhelming desire, for whatever reason, to come back to Richmond. An overwhelming desire. I mean overwhelming to the point where I came home one day from work, middle of the week, I packed my stuff, and I moved to Richmond. Because I was renting a room from, a, from a, a, a friend of mine. I just packed my stuff, and I moved to Richmond that night, drove home that night, and I called up the office. We had, we had what you call one get-out-of-jail-free card in the consulting firm. This is where you call the office and say, I don't like where I am. You need to put me somewhere else. And so I called and said, I'm cashing in my card. I have now moved to Richmond. Uh, If you want to keep me employed, you probably want to find me something in Richmond. For the next six weeks, I drove the four-hour round-trip commute every single day up to Arlington, Virginia to go to work. And my work didn't skip a beat. It's like I worked better. But it was because I was alive. It was like the Lord was doing something in me. I didn't know what it was, but it was so exciting. I just, I said, I've got to get home to Richmond. I'll stay here. I'll keep doing this until the Lord changes something but I need to be in Richmond. As I moved back into my parents' house at age 24, it actually wasn't that bad. It actually wasn't that bad. Um, As a matter of fact, that was the greatest time, believe it or not, that was the greatest time of spiritual revival in my entire life. That was the greatest time. They actually had, had, they let me have the top floor room you know, they, you know, they tried to help me be grown up a little bit. So they, had, they let me have the top floor room, which is all big, had a little area, a little dormer where you could, you know, pray. I had a chair. And I would rise up in the morning at like 4 o'clock in the morning and just lay before the Lord. And I would just cry and I would laugh and I would just pray and I would praise and I would weep and I would pray in tongues and I would read. It was just like the Lord was just pouring back, pouring back all the, all the years that the locust had eaten. The Lord was restoring, restoring, restoring in my heart. It was 
awesome. It was awesome. And I'll tell you, you know, for all the joy of just being forgiven, again, the prodigal son, he returns. You know, I'm not worthy to be called your son. And he says, forget that. You're forgiven. All that stuff is wiped away. Just the, the joy in that would have been enough, right? For the Lord to say, all right, I forgive you, but go sit in that corner and don't do anything else. Stay out of trouble would have been enough. But little did I know the Lord had so much more in store for me. So let's take a look back at Peter. So after he fell, no doubt, Jesus, Peter knew that Jesus had forgiven him. I mean, it wasn't it Jesus that said, how many times, Peter said, how many times should I, here goes Peter again, here's the spokesman, right? How many times should I sin against my brother and, and, and he forgave me? Or uh, my brother sinned against me and I forgive him. Seven times? No, Jesus says 70 times seven. Wasn't it Jesus who taught him about the unmerciful servant? So he knew that Jesus was one who would forgive. It was not the, it was not the, the forgiveness of Jesus that was a problem. It was the forgiveness of himself. What Peter could not bring himself to do was to forgive himself because every time he thought of that courtyard, he remembered what he did. And he remembered the look that Jesus had on his face when he looked back at him. And so this is why I believe when we get to chapter 21 of John, we see Peter back on the water again. Here he goes again. And believe it or not, this Sea of Tiberias is the Sea of Galilee. It's the same exact sea. Maybe even in the same exact boat where three years prior he met the Son of God on the side of the, on the, side of the sea. Three years ago, in this very same lake, he came face to face with the Lord. And in that moment, he told him he would be a, he would be a fisher of men. I can almost imagine Peter saying, and now look at me. Some fisher of men I've become. I mean, look at him. He's a wreck. Three years of walking with Jesus and sharing in his ministry, all unraveled in a single night. For me, it wasn't a single night. It was a series of years, but the same kind of thing. It was a great start, a promising start, completely derailed by failure. But into the moment of Peter's despair steps Jesus once again. And he's standing on the shore. But to restore Peter, he meets him at the place where it all began, right there on the shore. And, of course, we, saw, we read about the miraculous catch. And then after they eat, and we go to 15, and then Jesus asks him, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? Now, the these, what, that kind of gets, gets to you. It's like, what's these? Do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these fish? I wonder if his, if his love you more than these was more than these disciples. Because after all, Peter said in Matthew 26, even if all are made to stumble because of you, even if everybody else is made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you that this night before the rooster crows, you shall deny me three times. And Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so twice Jesus asked this question, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And it's interesting, Jesus uses the word agape the first time and second time. Agape, selfless devotion, unconditional love. Do you love me with a self-sacrificing love, Peter, more than these? But if you read the Greek, Peter does not respond with agape, he responds with phileo. So Jesus is saying, do you love me with a self-sacrificing love? And Peter says, Lord, you know, I love you like a brother. It's a little, a little incongruous, isn't it? And again he asks, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Are you selflessly devoted to me? Do you agape me? He says, Lord, you know, I phileo you. See, Peter knows that he's in no position at all to point to any of his actions as proof of his love. 
He knows that if he says that, Lord, I am selflessly devoted to you, I agape you, his words are immediately undone by his actions. And so all he's left with is, Lord, you know. You know. It's like, you know what I've done, Lord. Why are you pressing me with these questions? That's what he's doing. He's pressing in closer, deeper. He's cornering him. He's pinning him into a corner where he, he has to face it. He can't hide anymore. This, in fact, actually is the third time John records Jesus appearing to the disciples after he's resurrected. The first two times, Peter's name is not mentioned once, which is interesting, which is odd for the leader of the disciples' name not to be mentioned. I imagine that may be because, number one, he was first focusing on Thomas, doubting Thomas, but number two, I could almost imagine Peter kind of stepping back and being in the back of the room and not wanting to make eye contact with Jesus because of what he had done. The third time gets really interesting. Jesus mercifully meets Peter where he is. So he doesn't say, do you agape me? He says, do you phileo me? It's almost as if Jesus says, Peter, are you even my friend? Hmm. Do you love me with a brotherly love? Do you really? You say that you do, but do you? And of course, in verse 17, Peter says he was, the Bible says that he was crushed. He was grieved because he had asked him this question. And Peter is a complete mess now. I can just imagine the first question hits him. And the second one comes, he's like, Jesus, please don't ask me that again. Please don't ask me that again. Please don't ask me that again. And yet he does. And he doesn't ask the high and lofty love. He stoops down to his level and says, do you even love me the way you think you love me? Mm. Before, Peter said he would die for Jesus. But when push came to shove, he failed miserably. Could he be lying to himself once again and saying that I just love you with a brotherly love? He's a broken and wounded man, and he's ready for the great physician to heal him. Hosea 6.1, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. And so for me, again, being forgiven would have been enough for me. But remember the fraternity? The Lord wouldn't let that go. At this point, my dad had wisely kept me from serving in church because the Lord was still working on me. He was still working. He was filling me, but I wasn't quite where the Lord wanted me to be yet. And the Lord had made it very clear to me in my prayer time and all the time that I was spending with him that he wanted me to denounce the fraternity, not just leave. Right? Not just escape out of the back door or just disappear. Because I knew guys that did that too. I had a frat brother, a line brother, a guy that pledged with me, Curtis Lee Davis. I'm sorry, I mentioned his name. If you're out there, we're still looking for you. Uh, but he disappeared. After we graduated, no one ever heard from him again. And I believe he was a believer. I believe he was a Christian. And nobody heard from him again after college. But the Lord was, saying, was not having me to, to disappear. He wanted me to take a stand and say, I'm getting out of this. Whether you guys understand it or like it or not, I'm getting out of this fraternity. And that doesn't happen, right? There's no, there's no rule in the bylaws that say, okay, if you want to leave a fraternity, this is how you do it. They don't, they don't even have that in the Constitution. It's not a part of the rules. And yet the Lord pressed me on that. It was almost like, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And I, I wrestled with that. I wrestled with him. I made all kinds of excuses. I said, Martin Luther King was an alpha. I did. He did great things, so many great alphas, so many great alphas. They do so many great things in the community. God says, man measures man by man. God measures man by God. Don't you ever compare yourself to Martin Luther King or any other man. This is me and you. 
And at one point he said, I have an extraordinary call on your life. These are his words in my heart. It was as if it was, it was almost as, as if it was this verbal sitting in my room and I could almost hear it, in my, hear it in, my, in my physical ear, but I heard it as clear as day. I have an extraordinary call on your life, but you will never see it as long as Alpha is in your life. And then we just kept tossing back and forth for another couple weeks. And then it's as if the Lord said, okay, I've had it. One final time. Will you or will you not leave this fraternity for me? Be careful what you answer. Because if your answer is no, then Alpha has become your God. And that was all I needed to hear. When it came down to it, it's like that was that third question. It was like that, do you really love me the way you think you do? And when faced with that, I had to say, Lord, I want to love you like that. And I can't allow this to stand in the way. The Lord cornered me. And he pressed upon me. And he brought me to a place of surrender. And I lost a lot of friends. Man, that was an ugly, ugly divorce there. That was an ugly situation. But the Lord was so faithful. I don't miss that fraternity at all. At all. And little did I know, the Lord was preparing me for a day years later where I had to take another stand. And except this one was far more painful. It involved separation from something far more dear with far more at stake. And that was when the Lord called me to leave my father's church. You hear my, you hear my dad's name interspersed throughout this testimony. He has, he has been my shepherd my whole life. Remember, I don't remember anything before age seven. My entire life, this has been my shepherd. And the Lord began calling me. He began pressing me again. He began saying, it's time for you to go. And that was the most difficult thing I had ever done. I, w- I could have gone through leaving Alpha ten times without having to deal with that one. But the Lord was preparing me. The Lord used all those things, the past, the promising start, the failure, the restoration, did all that to prepare me for the day when he would bring me to the place where I'm standing right here, right now. And so with Peter... When he asked, do you love me? And then he said, feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. Feed my sheep. It was as if it was a recommissioning, a restoration of the calling that he had placed on his life. It's almost as if he said, I meant it when I said that you'd be a fisher of men. I meant it when I said that your your testimony would be the rock on which I would build my church. I meant it when I said that. And your fall did not void that calling. And just as the Lord restored Peter back to service, the Lord did the very same thing for me. But he had, to, he had to flush all that garbage out of my life. And all those idols had to come down. All those idols that I had built up in my own life out of my years of rebellion and running from the Lord, the Lord said, all those things have got to go. But when it's, when it's back down to just me and you, then I can work with you. And the Lord has been so faithful He did not forfeit, I did not forfeit his purpose in my life because of his love, not because of any good of mine, not by any works of righteousness that I could have ever have done, but because he is so faithful and he is so merciful. Remember our interview question? Peter, tell me about that night in the courtyard. You know, if we were to do those where are they now episodes in the the story of Peter, and you catch him later on in the book of Acts, and you were to ask Peter, well, tell me, what's the secret to your usefulness? I mean, you're one of the, one of the great leaders of the church again, the church of Jerusalem, you're doing such great things. One day I heard that you just walked by and your shadow was healing people, Peter. Wow. What do you think he might say? Aside from the work of the Holy Spirit, which absolutely, absolutely, he could have done nothing without the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, It's almost very likely, I'd imagine, that he would reflect back on that night. That night when he warmed himself by the fire. 
on that night when he failed his Lord. And then that morning at the beach when his Lord, his friend, restored him, healed him, and put him back into service. That's my story. A really promising start, completely derailed by failure, but by God's grace, restored by Christ. That's why I'm here today. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. I thank you. That failure is not final when it's in your hands. Lord, I know that I don't even deserve to stand here tonight. I don't deserve to stand Sunday after Sunday. And I thank you, Lord, that you allow me to keep these things in my mind, Lord, not as guilt, but as a reminder that is by your grace and your grace only that I have any use whatsoever to you and your kingdom. I pray for the young people tonight, all of our youth growing up in a seemingly pristine Christian environment. Many um, homeschooled, even greater um, in, in reinforcement at home. But Lord, there's a big bad world waiting for them when they leave home. And I pray, Lord, that just the truth shared tonight would just be a warning to them, Lord, that they would not follow the path that I follow. I pray for my own children that they won't follow the path that I follow. Lord, that they would choose to follow you all the days of their life, that they would be a Joseph. They would be a Joshua, young Joshua, growing old, fighting for you, standing for you. That they would be a young David, slaying giants, walking in your will. Lord, we thank you, and we just give you all praise and honor in Jesus' name. Amen.